0: Listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, the immigration crisis at the U.S. Mexico border has become a defining issue in this year's U.S. presidential election. It is a problem that the Biden administration has had a tough time trying to get a handle on. But this crisis did not appear out of nowhere. So, where did it begin? A new book called Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here. The U.S., Central America and the Making of a Crisis traces the crisis back decades and the decisions made by administrations in America long ago. Well, she blazed a trail in Canadian aviation, becoming the first woman to work as a pilot for a major carrier in this country when she was hired by Air Canada in 1978. Judy Cameron is retired now after a long career that saw her rise to the rank of captain. She shares stories from her remarkable journey and tells us how she's now encouraging more women to follow in her wake and why. Sam the Record Man was one of the biggest names in Canadian retail for decades before it went bankrupt and all but vanished in the 2000s. Except there is one last store, opened in 1979 at a mall in Belleville, Ontario, east of Toronto, and it is still there. More about the last Sam standing, how it may close because the owners are retiring, and we'll look at other big retail names from the past with Craig Baird, host of the Canadian History X podcast. But first, as we head into Super Bowl weekend, we look at one of the great football traditions, tailgating. Those huge picnics or barbecues held in those massive parking lots outside stadiums across the U.S. before the big game. We talk about its history, how it dates back to long before football, even back to the Civil War, and why team and stadium owners across America wouldn't mind relegating tailgating to history these days. Let's start tonight with the Super Bowl. It's coming up this weekend. Of course, it's always a big deal. 115 million people watched it in the U.S. last year, 8.6 million in Canada, which is still enormous. The game itself is the centerpiece, but everything else around it is also really important. The halftime show is always a big deal. Usher will take the field in Las Vegas this year at halftime. He says it will be a challenge to fit his 30-year, 30-year, it's a long time, I didn't realize he'd been around for that long, musical career into a 13-minute halftime show. Uh, He says he wants to give everyone a taste of the tracks he's created over the many years. What I did is I I was very mindful of my past, celebrating my present, which is here in Las Vegas,
1: and thinking about where we're headed in the future. And that was really the, the idea What songs do I feel people know me for? What songs have been a celebration
0: um, of all of the journey of what life and love and
1: emotion has been offered in my music?
0: Usher there will be performing at the halftime show at the Super Bowl on Sunday. Now, I didn't know this, but the artists don't get paid for that performance. Usher won't be paid. Prince wasn't paid. Springsteen wasn't paid. Beyonce wasn't. The Stones weren't. Rihanna wasn't. Apple pays $50 million to sponsor it. The artists get a $15 million production budget to work with. Some, such as The Weeknd, Dr. Dre, will even reach into their own pockets to increase that budget. But they do it for the exposure. 115 million people watching, as I mentioned, in the States, 8.6 million a year, and they get, you get 13 minutes of their attention. Usher has a new album coming out, obviously, and an upcoming tour as well, so good timing for him. And speaking of big numbers, food is always a part of it. Collectively, we'll eat about Americans, at least, we'll eat about 28 million pounds of potato chips during the Super Bowl, 12.5 million pizzas. They're going to spend $2.07 billion on chicken wings, $1.3 billion on beer alone. That's a lot of beer. And at least Some of that will be consumed at what is perhaps the greatest tradition in football fandom. That is the tailgate party. Not quite as common a sight here. It was certainly for me the best part of going to a game in Buffalo or a Jets game in New Jersey for that matter. Here is some
1: tailgating 101. Today, we're starting off with a little basic tailgate anatomy. Can anybody tell me what this is? Yes, Colleen. A truck. Okay, more specific? Metal. Less specific. A table. Close enough. This is what we call a tailgate. You know, the thing the class is named after? Now, a tailgate is the centerpiece. It can be used for a variety of things. For example, a table. Just like John mentioned, it can also be used for a bar, buffet line. Just like that, it's a lazy boy. Or if you're a Bills fan, a diving board. Don't try that at home.
0: (laughs) There you have it, some tailgating 101. Craig Renfro knows everything there is to know about tailgating. He's the owner of Tailgater Magazine. Uh, Craig, thanks so much for your time tonight.
2: I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much, Ben.
0: This is one of those things, it's it's one of those, you know, Canadians, we do do it a little bit, but just not the same way. It's just not, I guess part of it has to do with the weather, obviously, at this time of year. But Minnesotans will have tailgating at this time of year. Uh, where did it begin from? Begin, because I gather it started long before, well, certainly long before the NFL and even before football itself.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the history of tailgating goes back to the American Civil War, believe it or not. Um, Apparently people were very bored back in those days unless you're on the fighting lines and apparently the Battle of Bull Run, the first Battle of Bull Run to be precise, spectators lined up I'm assuming outside of a rifle shot distance to watch the carnage going on. Talk about your gladiator blood sport, but that is the first known instance of tailgating. Obviously, we've evolved since then. Probably not quite as uh, barbaric or sadistic as uh, as those times, but yeah. When people think of tailgating, you know, and it's it's typically around you know college or NFL football. And obviously, with the current season, you know, culminating here with the Super Bowl in Las Vegas, uh, it's been a great year for tailgating. There's been a ton of products that have been exposed out there, and uh, certainly uh, we wanted to talk about any of those topics or ideas that uh, that you're willing and able to ready to talk about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I guess so. When I was just reading a little bit of the history earlier from the earliest days of football this exists as well like people bring food to football games now I guess there wasn't there weren't concessions back in the day but people were in the habit of sort of tailgating early early on in football history
2: Sure. Go, going back to, um, according to history, um, Rutgers and Princeton, which played the very first uh, college football game in 1869, uh, which obviously was shortly after the, the end of the Civil War, uh, fans showed up, uh, of course, you know, pre of the of the automobile, but they showed up in their horse and buggy and brought sandwiches, snacks uh, drinks, of course, and sat there and watched the very first college football game obviously it 's grown since then and expanded and, and I think when you start looking at the history you know with, with the NFL coming on board you know in, in the 1920s and the advent of the automobile kind of in, in that time frame. Going through, progressing through, you know, World War II is really when, you know, after we got back, you know, kind of the baby boom culture or generation, if you will, when the automotive became uh, more prevalent, uh, American culture was, you know, economy was prospering and growing. The uh, expansion of the NFL is when people started going, and then perhaps even more importantly, back in the late 60s, early 70s, when some of the uh, major NFL teams like like the New York Giants, who'd been played you know near downtown in the pole Grounds, they they moved out to the Meadowlands in New Jersey. Um, the Pittsburgh Steelers, likewise, who'd always played downtown, they moved out you know kind of moving out further away, and so there was an area that we go, you know, hey, we've got to drive to the stadium now. We can't you know take transit or, uh, you know, walk to the stadium. we got to drive out to the stadium, and they were just surrounded with these big parking lots which lent itself to, hey, we're getting here. The parking lot opens three hours before the game. Let's bring a grill. Let's cook some burgers. Let's cook some brats. Let's have some cold beers and, uh, you know, celebrate and get ready for the the game to, to come.
0: Yeah, I mean, that part of it is, I, I imagine, of course, that uh, that the whole advent of the huge parking lots and the suburban stadiums and so on had a big part of it. But it, is, it has evolved so much since then. I remember even seeing sort of, uh, you know, images of tailgating back in, you know, I guess it was college games in the 80s and so on. Now it, it, it's almost, I mean, it's almost a bigger deal than the game itself at times because people put so much effort and so much time into it. Uh, you must have seen some great tailgating in your time.
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've been to, I I actually estimate somewhere close to a thousand sports events in my life. And a lot of Major League Baseball games thrown there because they play so many during the season, but also hundreds of college and and NFL football games. And living in the Dallas, uh, Fort Worth uh, area, Dallas, Texas, um, you know, the Dallas Cowboys are here. The world champion Texas Rangers are here. There's a big NASCAR track here. But going back to when I first, you know, actually started tailgating, was my freshman year in college, which was 1982 at Texas A&M University down in College Station, Texas. And that happened to be the year uh, Jackie Sherrill was our new coach that year. They gave him an outrageous contract of $250,000 a year, if you can believe that. And uh, we started going to the games and bringing, you know, stuff to eat, adult beverages to consume beforehand. But you go to a game in College Station now, there will be 100-plus thousand people out in the parking lot. There will be more people that are actually tailgating than actually will make it into the game, and the stadium holds 105,000 people
0: that's that's remarkable i remember seeing there's i think there's a documentary out right now about johnny manziel right and that's and, and just seeing seeing that 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 passion i think that's the part of it that's so so alluring is that you know i've been to a lot of sort of soccer games in, in europe and so on and they don't have that right because they don't have that same they just can't all a lot of the stadiums are downtown and so on but the idea right. that you could bring so many people together and that it becomes such an important part of the event um what are some of the do's and don'ts at tailgating because i think that part of it is really interesting too i think i've never really understood the etiquette of it although i've I've been to a few at uh, at what used to be called Rich Stadium in Buffalo. I forget what it's called now.
2: Yeah, well, it, it, you you mentioned Buffalo at the at the outset here. The the Buffalo we've actually written a, a, some stories about uh, about Pinto Ron and uh, his famous the Buffalo uh, mafia uh, crowd, they do an excellent job of uh, uh, of tailgating there. But you know, as far as some, some do's or don'ts, uh, I mean, the, the main thing is just you know be respectful of the your, of your neighbors. You know, don't be too loud. Um, be aware that there's probably children around, so keep the language at a at a PG level. Um, one of the main things I always tell people to do is you know pick up after yourself. Okay, you know your mom doesn't uh, isn't here at the tailgate; she doesn't work here, so be sure to bring trash bags. But uh, you know, the key to having a good tailgate uh, is it's you, you want to make sure that you have, you know, organization, just like anything else. I, I tell people, you know, get you a checklist of things that you're going to need. And in fact, I have what I call my, you know, like I'm going to be a, sp- a, spiller, a spy a thriller movie that, you know, I've got my go bag ready. Right. And if someone called me two hours before kickoff, I'd say, yeah, I grab it, and it's got my, my paper <laughs> towels, my plates, my disposable cups, the trash bags, my ice cooler, uh, spatula, tongs, uh, Condiments, spices, everything I would need to, uh, you know, to get ready. So all I would have to do is, you know, stop by at the grocery store, grab some hamburgers and buns, and we're off to the game.
0: We're getting the mood for Super Bowl Sunday tonight, talking about tailgating with Craig Renfro. He's the owner of Tailgater Magazine. He's in Dallas tonight. Uh, again, tailgating, one of those incredibly cool traditions that exists around football, specifically, by the way. And we're talking about uh, that this evening. Uh, Craig, I- I've always thought, because I- I'm in BC now, so I go to games in Seattle sometimes. And, of course, because of the stadium's right downtown... There is no tailgating at their games. There's a lot at the University of Washington games, but not at the Seahawks games. Um, do they, do you ever get any pushback from, from the league itself or the stadiums itself? Because I'm sure they'd like to have all of those people inside spending money at those concession stands instead of outside eating their own food.
2: Well, I, I absolutely, would. And, and interesting you say that because uh, my Dallas Cowboys are a prime example. Um, back at their old stadium, they uh, encouraged tailgating. They had plenty of spots to do so open the gates hours and hours before kickoff. At the new stadium, yes, uh, Jerry wants you inside uh, Jerry World uh, sooner rather than later, and they've drastically restricted the number of spots that are open for tailgating, the amount of time that you can actually be out there, and they have police that are going through there you know, monitoring to make sure you're not doing anything that's uh, against their rules, i.e. A, an open flame, being too loud, glass bottles, that sort of thing. Because like I said, yeah, why would you, uh, Jerry wouldn't want you out there eating your own hamburger and drinking your own beer if we didn't charge you 15 or $20 for one inside his uh, confines. But uh, interesting you mention you know, the the diversity between Seattle, yeah, I've been to uh, the Seattle Seahawks stadium before, and it's you know kind of right downtown. There isn't any parking; you either walk or take your public transportation up to it. But the University of Washington is a beautiful beautiful uh, scene for tailgating. In fact, they have what we call sailgating, which is right. one of the few universities where you can actually you know, dock out on your boat and get ready and just party on the water, if you will. Um, University of Washington is like that. University of Tennessee is like that. And then Baylor University in, in Waco, t- uh, Texas, is the three schools in the nation that, that offer the, the sailgating. But all three of those schools are in our uh, top 25 college tailgates issue of the magazine, which which if I could make a quick plug here, For sure. you go to tailgatermagazine.com, click on the digital issue, you can get a free digital subscription of the magazine, which is a replica of the hard copy print version that we offer.
0: What I liked about tailgating so much, it, it is, it's the democracy of it that's so cool. I mean, you can have... I gather, I mean, I've even seen people with rival teams out there. I mean, in other parts of the world, sometimes sports can get a little hairy, right? It can get a little, tempers can flare pretty quickly. But tailgating seemed to me to be one of these incredible moments where everyone just sort of stands around, gets ready for the game, enjoys themselves, enjoys the food, enjoys each other. And there's something quite lovely. There's something quite amazing about it. I really hope it doesn't go away.
2: Well, it, yes, and, and you're absolutely correct there. Uh, I don't think we have uh, at least the, quite the American reputation, as you will, from some of the European uh, soccer crowds that uh, <laughs> that you have beforehand. And, and I'll use as a perfect example of two heated rivalries that uh, come game time, you may not be your friends, but before or after the game, uh, it's good. And uh, that example is uh, LSU, Louisiana State University, which is in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, they are, you know, they won multiple national championships. In, in, in college football, they have one of the best tailgating environments in, in, in the nation. And I've been there as an opposing you know, Texas A&M fan. And, yeah, they'll, they will treat you nice. They'll share their food with you. They'll share your drink with you. Uh, but but come, uh, come kickoff time, um, they don't know you. <laughs> and after the game... Um, especially if they win, um, then you're all welcome to come back and hang out some more. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a commodity that uh, you, you don't see, I think, uh, in uh, a lot of forms or so, uh, aspects of society. And, and certainly I think that is uniquely to the uh, the American college game, probably more so than anything else.
0: Yeah. Any predictions for this weekend? I know your Cowboys aren't there again, uh, unfortunately. Again. Again.
2: <laughs> again.
0: again. But, but any predictions for this weekend?
2: Well, um, I – I just don't see Mahomes and the Chiefs being stopped. Um, they've got the experience. This is their, what, fourth appearance in the last five years. The 49ers have a great team. There's no doubt about that. But uh, Kansas City, you know, they kind of, you know, had some ups and downs during the course of the season, but I think once the playoffs have hit, they've hit their stride. And they've just got the experience and, uh, you know, they've been there, done that. And Mahomes is, is one of the best quarterbacks in the history of the game, and he's really just getting started. So, yeah, I'm I'm picking the Chiefs thirty five thirty one.
0: Right, and I'm sure you have a menu set up as well, Craig. Thank you so much for your time tonight.
2: Well, I appreciate, it, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, if uh, like I said, go to tailgatermagazine.com, Check us out. All hey, kinds man. of food and drink recipes, and great gear and products to make your next tailgate or backyard barbecue the best ever. <laughs>
0: Do you remember signing up for your first Facebook account? I was trying to remember tonight when that happened for me, probably sometime in 2005, 2006, I think, maybe a little later, maybe 2007. I mean, everyone was doing it at the time, at least everyone I knew, especially journalists, obviously, were, you know, were were, were interested in communicating and finding out where people were and so on. So it was pretty remarkable at the beginning, though, because it was great to catch up with people from your past that you hadn't seen in years. And Perhaps that was the good part. The bad part was sometimes catching up with people that you hadn't seen in years, but it was a really cool way. It was so novel at the time to be able to, the way it worked and and, and just, it it felt sort of magical, to be honest. Uh, Little did we know at the time, it was great to see friends and their lives change, marriage, kids, new jobs, holidays all that stuff. Great for catching up on birthdays if it's something you tended to forget. Uh, When I was abroad working as a a correspondent in Beijing, then in in London, it was also a great way to feel connected to home. So to me, I had this really kind of positive relationship with Facebook for a very long time, right up through those years abroad, because it really felt like something I was able to... um, to catch, be able to connect with people at the time. But as, as the decade progressed, so I come back to Canada in 2015, little do I know there's a company not far from me where I'm living in Victoria called Cambridge Analytica that are kind of at the forefront of parts of this. Uh, but we also were beginning to realize uh, how much information we were making available, how much of our personal information was being made available, how valuable that information was to the platform, how much our data helped drive all of this, how valuable our eyeballs were, the old saying going, uh, say, you know, the old saying is that the product is, free. if the product is free, uh, then, the, or if the, if the thing is free, the product is you. I got that a bit wrong, but you know what I'm getting at. Um, and it would become a magnet for advertisers for exactly the same reason, right? People were going there. They could, They knew a lot more about us. They could target us with this kind of stuff. And then it kind of, then it was weaponized. I mean, perhaps it's not all that surprising, but then it was weaponized, all those eyeballs, all that attention. Uh, It had to be useful for more nefarious means, selling political messages, for instance, demonizing a rival group, using it to drive wedges between people, to create divisions within societies and so on. Well, Facebook turns 20 this month, believe it or not. That happened back on February the 4th. and, um, you know, here it is. It's barely into adulthood, and it's had such a history so far. If it's any indication of how bumpy the last little while has been for Facebook as it hits adulthood, here's an exchange between uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO, and uh, U.S. Senator Josh Hawley. Uh, he was, Zuckerberg was on Capitol Hill last week uh, before a Senate Judiciary Committee.
1: Uh, have a listen. Why is it that you can claim, you hide behind a liability shield, you can't be held accountable? Shouldn't you be held accountable personally? Will you take personal responsibility? Senator, I, I think I've already answered this. I mean, this is- these We'll try this again. Will you take personal responsibility? Senator, I view my job and the job of our company as building the best tools that we can to keep our community safe- Well, you're failing at that. Well, Senator, we're doing an industry-leading effort. We build AI oh, tools nonsense. that... Oh, f- nonsense. Your product is killing people. Will you personally commit to compensating the victims? You're a billionaire.
3: Senator, these are complicated
1: yes, th- issues. Yes, no, that, that's not a complicated uh, question, uh, though. Senator, that's a yes or no. Will you set up a victim's compensation fund with your money, the money you made on these families sitting behind you? Yes or no? Senator, I don't think that that's... Uh, uh, my job is to Sounds make sure like a build no. good tools. My, Sounds my job like a is a no. to make sure that... We-
0: Yeah, uh, happy birthday, Mark. Uh, I mean, needless to say, Josh Hawley, a lot of that is just performance. Uh, But you do get the idea. I mean, this was about setting up a compensation uh, fund for families who say they've been victimized by by Facebook and its associated brands. Um, But we thought we'd look back at its two decades now, uh, how it's transformed the social media landscape and so much more uh, for better and for worse. Joining me now is Jeff Horvitz. He's a technology reporter for The Wall Street Journal. He's also author of Broken Code, Inside Facebook, and the Fight to Expose Its Harmful Secrets. Jeff, thank you for your time tonight. Certainly. That was quite the exchange. I mean, I thought of that in the lead-up to the 20th birthday on, on the weekend, and I thought, you know, it, it's interesting where we've arrived here because uh, it started off in a way, and I was talking about it earlier, it started off in some ways as such a, a feel-good kind of project, Facebook, at least for the user. Uh, when did that start to change, do you think?
1: You know, I think, look, it, it's a, to some degree, companies are shaped by how they formed, and I think it's, it's uh, worth noting that Facebook did originate you know, on a college campus and an elite one at that people who were, you know, sort of, these were just sort of college kids providing a social outlet to other college kids. Um, and, uh, you know, if anything seriously bad happened, it was time to go to the Dean. So, um, the, the company's history, um, around this stuff, I think it's important to also keep in mind that the product itself, it doesn't much look like what it was when it was first launched. Right. Um, I mean, originally, this was just a place you could follow your friends, you could um, eventually see their posts, um, and you know you could post and, and share things with them. Um, the guts of the platform are fundamentally different now. And a lot of that's due to machine learning and uh, and the algorithms. So uh, content ranking and recommended unconnected recommendations of unconnected content, in other words, people you don't follow, um, that's something that really sort of changed the product and I think in some ways made it a higher risk endeavor.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think anyone who uses Facebook, and I was, we were seeing some data today that Facebook still remains uh, by a fairly large margin, people's favorite, not everybody's obviously, it has an older demographic now, but people's favorite social media platform. But you do notice that if you're on the platform now that a lot more of it is is advertising and things you don't necessarily uh, sign up for. Um, when did it start to be, I mean, I, I'm trying to remember back as to when it started to be I mean, weaponized mightn't be the right word at the time, but as I mentioned, I lived not far from Cambridge Analytica when I moved to Victoria in 2015. Little did I know what was happening down the street at the time. We would we would learn it later. But when did it start to become seen as something that could be manipulated for for, for, for you know, manipulated in a way that we hadn't expected, yeah. perhaps?
1: Yeah, I mean, internally at the company, I think the 2016 U.S. election was something of a wake-up call. Um, For a very long time, the company had so taken the position that connecting people um, was an inherently good thing and that the more time they used Facebook, uh, the better connected they'd be. And so just basically more Facebook is more good. Um, And, you know, you had people like Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, stating publicly that uh, he believed that um, connecting the, the spread of Facebook would help end all terrorism because, Uh, You know, people in the Middle East couldn't hate each other if they were connected via social networks. They'd somehow recognize each other's humanity. Um, That obviously was more than a little optimistic. The company, um, I think in 2016, started sort of looking under the hood itself, right? And uh, questioning exactly how its products worked and trying to even figure out some of its own mechanics. And as silly as it sounds, um, the company really never put all that much effort into trying to understand what it was recommending or sort of how users were uh, acting on its platform or ways it might be shifting user behavior until after 2016. Um, They, uh, you know, and I think, I think they just sort of assumed that wasn't, you know, it was a neutral platform and everything would work out just fine. Um, You know, Cambridge Analytica is an interesting one to to raise in that um, in the end, how much Cambridge Analytica actually did, um, is fairly unclear. And, and, you know, I think a lot of the people internally at the company are are fairly convinced that these guys were just snake oil salesmen. Um, and in fact that, you know, one of the ironies of the Cambridge Analytica scat, uh, scandal was that internal Facebook teams would have happily provided the supposedly nefarious slicing and dicing of, you know, user data that Cambridge Analytica was accused of, um, I think there was kind of this sense of like, well, who's to blame for what's going on on these platforms, right? Because people aren't, people are sort of acting in ways that we weren't used to in regular society. And, um, you know, the first effort was sort of like, well, can we pin that on the Russians or is that the problem? Of so or is that the problem of Cambridge Analytica? And I think it took a little longer, even inside the company for people to, start looking at how Facebook had been designed and how it promoted content and sort of some of the ways in which the company might be maximizing user engagement in ways that um, could foreseeably be uh, create problems.
0: And then we move into... I think, another chapter to some extent, because we've had Francis Haugen on the show, actually. Uh, When you have people from inside the company coming out and saying, point blank, that warnings are being ignored, that uh, that things are being flagged and they're not being fixed. Now, I don't know how much, and this is essentially a lot of what your book is about, um, but that things have been flagged and and are are being ignored by the company. Do you think that's been... How does that play into this larger story, then?
1: Yeah, so uh, Francis uh, was... Sort of my my star source. She's a uh, you know the one who pe- appears in the book, um, uh, and uh, you know I think look over the course of several years, uh, Meta came to understand Facebook. Meta came to understand the way its product worked um, better than anyone outside the company possibly could. Right? Uh, you know, it's you know people outside were debating. Well, you know, is this good or bad for teen mental health? You know, what what sort of Videos does does um, Facebook favor you know what what kind of like does it you know does it favor radicalized polarized content and um, in some of these answers some some of these questions the uh, you know the people inside could run a simple A B test and uh, say yes or no and I mean in a number of instances they really did document some extremely pernicious effects right they they found that um, uh, that the way that they were favoring basically that they were choosing to promote content that encouraged people to fight Um, the more sort of adversarial and confrontational uh, the language, the better it would perform. Um, And these are things that sort of nobody was looking at originally. Obviously they documented internally and that stuff did come out. Um, I mean, not all of it. There was, you know, someone I was recently speaking to at the company said, Francis Haugen just got the tip of the iceberg. But, um, but that said, uh, it, it was, I think, still remarkable just seeing how much, um, how much the company was aware that it was not sort of the overseer of a neutral platform that just needed a, maybe a little more, a little less moderation, that it was actually shaping behavior and shaping behavior in ways that were to its own financial interest.
0: Jeff Horwitz is with us, a technology reporter for The Wall Street Journal, author of Broken Code, Inside Facebook and in the Fight to Expose Its Harmful Secrets. We're talking about Facebook. Uh, it just turned 20 over the weekend, 20 years it's been with us. Into adulthood, it reaches with 3 billion uh, active monthly users, by the way, which is a staggering number if you think about it. Um, Jeff, when you look ahead to what might become of Facebook, because clearly the genie's not going back in the bottle, uh, there's a lot of attention paid to it. And yet it doesn't seem to be either any less... Popular or any any less powerful, so it's hard to figure out where it's going from here uh, in the next little while, because, as, as you saw from Josh Hawley and other politicians, they are in many people's uh sites, needless to say
1: yeah um, well look it, it is there's no question that this thing is still churning out money, and that usage is still very strong um, that said there are Facebook is a mature, maybe even significantly aging product. Um, And there are some, you know, worrying some signs from the point of view of people actually using it. Um, There are not many kids on this thing whatsoever. Teens don't really use it. This is, um, uh, you know, by social media standards, getting to be more of a geriatric product. And that was a thing that was um, of extreme concern to the company. Um, And I think a reason why they were in some ways resistant to a lot of the to really slowing down and paying attention to some of the concerns about societal um, harm that might be accruing is because they, they felt like they were, you know, fighting for their lives in, in uh, uh, the next generation of users as absurd as it might sound for a company that size to be, you know, sort of so concerned, uh, you know, even, even the slightest drop in user numbers was a, a great fear. So The company, um, has of course, uh, you know, obviously it renamed renamed itself meta with a focus on virtual reality and uh, the metaverse Uh, that just did not work. Um, the technology simply wasn't, uh, as billed. Um, and, uh, you know, I think at this point, looking back on, on the last couple of years of the company, they've, uh, you know, they're spending tens of billions of dollars every year on uh, this stuff. And, um, basically getting none of it back. Um, and so you've had the company recently sort of pivot towards saying that it's really going to be focused on, um, on AI and on, um, you know, sort of catching some of that current wave of enthusiasm. Um, obviously they do have the ability to run, uh, uh, to sort of use all of, its, all of their users' activity as um, kind of feedstock to put into AI for training models. Um, But I don't know anyone really knows exactly how that's going to look for social media directly, right? It's, um, you know, it's sort of not entirely clear. Okay, you can, you know, generate text coherently and you can certainly generate images. But um, the form of AI that made Facebook so powerful and that made it as successful as it was in terms of, you know, gaining a share of users' time uh, isn't sort of the current trend
0: yeah it's it's interesting to to look at meta through that lens because in some ways even though the product that made them has evolved as you mentioned off the top drastically since uh, since it was introduced 20 years ago um and they bought instagram obviously which has been a big success for them as well that within facebook itself there hasn't been um a whole lot of i mean there's been a lot of innovation but they haven't been really been able to spin off into something else uh despite as you mentioned the attempts and it doesn't feel like they're really at the forefront of any of the rest of it these days anyway other things are coming along uh i guess that's the problem when a when a social media company turns 20 as you pointed out that's not adulthood that's that's retirement age for most social media
1: um yeah this is this is a Look, this is a and, and there's been. I think Mark Zuckerberg has been very concerned about you know catching the next thing. Like there was a period of time when he was really excited about the blockchain and NFTs. Um, uh, and you know it's kind of hard thinking of a sort of a particular sort of new new form of technology that he wasn't really excited about, if that makes sense. Um, uh, but and I think you know the company has look, it built this, it developed obviously the massive power and network effects that come with it. It continues to sort of optimize it, but it would be kind of almost hard to say that running the world's largest social media networks is something that the company really spends, I mean, it's not where it's putting its resources on, Uh, resources at the moment, right? Like last year was, quote unquote, the year of efficiency, and they had a ton of staff, a lot of them dealing with platform oversight and governance and moderation, um, you know, while they're sort of building up AI and, um, you know, augmented reality glasses and things that sort of are, are a little more speculative. So I think there is a desire to some degree to move on, but at the same time, um, you know, the the thing that produces the cash and, and that's, uh, you know, has made meta a trillion dollar company, uh, you know, is these sort of these legacy products.
0: Given all the work you've done on it over the years, uh, where do you, where do you, do you, do you think it'll be with us for another, another 15, 20, or do you think it'll be, I mean, I, I get the sense that the platform and the way it works has an appeal and that, that people of, you know, my generation and so on might use it for a long time, but we mightn't be wedded to it the way people once were. It'll simply be one of those out there that, uh, that does okay at what it does, kind of like cable TV in some weird way
1: um it's an interesting analogy yeah the the look the um the company there are some significant threats i think one of the threats that these people inside the company were were um sort of more focused on safety were worried about was that this just isn't really a good place to create content if you notice you know the things that you see are either small scale people who you're friends with posting, um, or, uh, you know, they're kind of like stolen their memes or like kind of borrowed content. Nobody, you know, no celebrities are rushing to Facebook to sort of break news there or, you know, announce anything particularly important. Um, Instagram, as you noted, sort of helped extend the life a bit and kind of keep this thing, uh, going. And I mean, there's no question that sort of as an advertising tool, the targeted advertising they've got is, um, Uh, is world-class, and that's, you know, that's why they're a trillion-dollar company. But this isn't a, um, uh, you know, one of the reasons why they've shifted to recommending unconnected content is because users aren't really producing as much as they used to. Um, You know, if you think about how much you or your friends post, I guarantee you that, uh, you know, if you got on there in 2005 or 2006, you were a lot more busy uh, as a poster uh, back in 2010 than you were in 2015, and then you were in 2020, these things just kind of dropped off. And so um, it's kind of getting to be this less of a base and less of kind of the original vision of a place where everyone's sharing and more of a consumption machine, which is, you know, a little more, I mean, that's where I think your cable news analogy comes in or yeah. cable TV analogy comes in.
0: Yeah, and also just, the, you know, at, at a certain point, once the, once the underlying value starts to diminish, the advertisers start to go away. I mean, I'm just sort of that, that, that circle that starts to begin. Um, Jeff, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Take care. Yeah?
2: What are you going to be when you
4: grow up? A great hockey player. And you Pierre? prime minister, of course. Sam? and
2: have the best chain of record stores in canada with great music at great prices listen
0: i said it i did it great music great prices Sam the Record Man ad there. Uh, what are you, you going to do, Gordy and Pierre? I guess that was Gordy Howe and Pierre Trudeau at the time. But Sam Snyderman, of course, would uh, grow up to be Sam the Record Man. Uh, the chain was once the largest music, music recording retailer in this country with 140 locations across Canada. Started back in 1930. Um, and it really, to me, it didn't seem like it was that long ago that I would wait in that long line on Boxing Day at Sam's in Montreal, freezing, obviously, uh, the day after Christmas, for the chance at a few good deals. There weren't often that many good deals. It was more the experience than anything else of just being there with everyone else and complaining about the cold and then finally getting in the door. But I was a Sam's devotee for a long, long time. I used to go there all the time, basically. Now, of course, it's been a while. You, you can forgive my age. It's been a while since it basically disappeared. So there are probably a few listening who don't know what it is. But uh, it declared bankruptcy in 2001. It had 140 locations, as I mentioned, in the 80s. By 2001, it had declared bankruptcy. And bit by bit, they all began to disappear. The flagship Toronto location on Young shut its doors 17 years ago now. And for most of us who were so used to shopping there, I mean, of course, things had changed. People had stopped buying uh, recorded music that way. Well, that was kind of that. I didn't know this until this week. And I've been to Belleville. It turns out there's actually one single Sam the Record Man store still out there. It's at the Quinty Mall in Belleville, uh, that's about an hour east of Toronto. Barbie and Burnaby says, having done elementary and high school in Trenton, just 12 miles to Belleville, where the military base is, I know the store... Uh, it was the big city to us, Belleville, and that closes the door on another fond memory. Not quite yet. We don't know. We don't know, Barbie. It might survive. Um, I think I even bought some 45s there. Teens never had the joy of spending an hour or so flipping through till you found a little magic in a colorful sleeve. Yeah, there you have it. I did a lot of that at Sam the Record, but I used to, I remember they used to have them on racks on the wall. And sometimes you'd look up, you'd be looking for, for that one that you wanted, and it would be sold out, right? Which happened back in the day. Don't forget, music used to be finite, not like today, where everything is. everyone can listen to everything at the same time. Um, but it was an amazing time. It was an amazing time uh, to go buy records. So that one store survived. It was opened in 1979 by a couple, and after 45 years... They're looking to retire. Um, there's a sale. They want to sort of hand this off. I think they have a, a couple of other stores as well. Spencer Dustin is his name. And um, he may be, he is the last Sam standing. Here's what he had to say about his decision to sell.
2: What the future hold holds, who knows? But right now, we're working diligently in trying to pass these stores on and keep them in the community.
0: Yeah, the phone is still ringing there, looking for uh, looking for the top 10. Here are what some of their customers, young and old, by the way, had to say about the prospect of it closing for good.
4: We shopped at Sam's back then in the 70s and the 80s. Oh, God, I was, I was really upset. I was so sad. I love shopping here.
0: There you have it. Craig Barrett is host of the Canadian History X podcast. He's been looking into some of our favourite Canadian stores of the past that have... Uh, you know, disappeared as time has gone on. And and just, it was nice. He actually posted this on social media, the fact that this one uh, was still standing after it got some coverage. Craig, thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. It was remarkable. I mean, I think I hadn't seen the story yet. Sometimes I catch those, but it was your social media post that flagged that last one in uh, in Belleville. And I thought I had no idea that there was a single Sam the Record Band
4: left out there. It seems almost It seems almost like finding something in an archaeological dig. Oh, it really does. You know, you occasionally have that where you think that something's been gone for a long time, and then you discover that there's this one holdout, you know, the same thing happening with uh, Blockbuster. So, you know, you you find out that there's this one holdout, holdout, and then uh, you start to think about the times you spent at that chain.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of those people who drove across the country in the U.S. to go to the one McDonald's that still made pizza, like one of the, <laughs> those yeah. things. It was. It's hard to, for those who weren't there, and I think most people listening will probably remember a time when Sam the Record Man was absolutely dominant, but what an important part of the record business and the music business in this country uh, that franchise
4: was for so long. Oh, absolutely it was. I mean, in the, the location in Toronto, oh. even though I've was never able to see it. I do recognize the location with the two big records out front and the fact that it really helped grow Canadian content because Sam Snyderman was such a a supporter of uh, Canadian content or CanCon. And that's the reason why we have, you know, so much of the music that we recognize today from Canadian artists. So even in that way, it had a huge impact on Canadian culture. Yeah. I mean, having
0: grown up in Montreal, there were very few things that I would begrudge Toronto as being better at, (laughs) but I had to confess that the first time I saw that Sam the Record Band, I'm like... That is a Sam the Record Band. It was it was funny inside because it was a bit of a Warren. It wasn't as it wasn't like the HMVs were where it was quite wide open and everything was sort of airy and so on. The Sam the Record Band, even in Toronto, was was pretty. You had to kind of move around quite a bit. There was an upstairs, if I remember correctly. It was it was a bit of a Warren of a place, but it was a magical spot to buy a record. Uh, we have a couple of other ones now. Uh, here's another one. I bring this one up as one of those franchises that is no longer with us because it happened to be right beside Sam the Record Band. And that was no coincidence, by the way. Have a listen. a as new music
2: on the move. Yeah. From the Capitol, Kajagoogoo's Blake 697 Cassette, Iron making, Peace of Mind, Little River Bands and Met, and Duran Duran,
1: all 697 Cassette. And let's dance from David Bowie, 697 Cassette. we and prizes in a scratch-and-win contest. a and new, new music on the
0: move. a has got it! Yeah, forgive the audio there. I'm not sure. Why it sounds like I taped that myself off the AM radio back in the 80s. Uh, but yeah, 697 cassettes. Uh, Craig, A&A uh, was a pretty big story, too, because they, in fact, got even bigger than Sam the record man at one point. But if you ever went to that Young Street flagship Sam's and looked slightly to your left, there was the a a flagship, and that was no coincidence. That was competition.
4: Oh, without a doubt. And I mean, you look at their A&A on the front, it's, it's as big as the, the two records on the front of Sam's. But like you said, yeah, they were very large. They had twice as many locations as Sam the Record Man. But in the end, that kind of was their undoing. They didn't really have a, a marketing strategy for how they were going to, uh, to sell their, you know sell their business. They were just putting up locations everywhere they possibly could. So it was a very big chain, but being a big chain is what kind of brought them down.
0: It's ironic that both Sam the Record Man, I mean, you know, people's, the way that music was sold changed, and that sort of spelled the end for all those franchises, including even HMV, which was a later, sort of a later and more successful uh, business in the later part of that record sale era, but it's interesting to see that that the mall, in many ways, expansion into malls, is wound is what wound up really hurting A and A and and Sam's to some extent as well. Although A and A, you may recognize, I think Music World and Sunrise Records were took over some of what was left of A and A back in the day, and there's a few of those still around. But it's funny that the last standing Sam the Record Man would be in a mall. There's a bit of a there's there's a bit of an irony to that. <laughs>
4: There absolutely is. Like you said, uh, the malls were kind of the undoing as the buying habits changed over the course of the 1980s and the 1990s. And it's kind of poetic that both the Sound of the Record Men flagship uh, place and the ANA flagship both were torn down at the same time. They kind of went out together.
0: That's right, because it's. Uh, I think it's Toronto Metropolitan University that's taken over a lot mm-hmm. of that land right around uh, where, where they used to be on that little stretch, which was like, wait, a record mecca back in the day. What was it, Craig? What was yours then? I mean, you would have been. You would have gone to the mall like 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 everyone did. What was your What was your go to place? Was it, was it HMV at the mall?
4: I believe it was HMV. There was an HMV in West Edmonton Mall that I would go to, but I believe there was a sound Record Man in uh, Edmonton that I, I had seen at least, but I don't know if I went in there. Uh, that would have been in the 1990s, so it was kind of getting to the tail end of their heyday.
0: Yeah, I hate to sound like the old man and all this. I think I'd been to the Sam the Record Man because my mom worked uh, for the CBC for quite a while, so she moved around the country quite a bit. And at one point, I think I was able to brag that I'd been to a Sam the Record Man in about 16 <laughs> different cities. That I could show you the 45s that I bought in Charlottetown and in Halifax, and I would bore people with it. I'll stop boring anybody with, with it now. Um, but it's, it was interesting. Yeah, the record business was such a big part uh, a big part of this of, of this country. I really hope this one, you know, they're trying to sell it. They have two other stores as well, which have different names. But wouldn't it be great? If someone bought this and kept it, uh, I think it would be awesome
4: yeah, just to kind of keep it going, I mean obviously it's probably going to see an upkick in business now that people know that it's there, and obviously that will start to die away, but you know just to keep it because it was a, a part of our heritage, much like like uh, Eaton's you know Eaton's is long gone now, but these are all part of our cultural heritage, and when they're gone, they're gone. <laughs>
2: Cover to cover, people discover, consumers distributing your Christmas book to value.
0: Create your own salon-style hair fashions with a
2: Daisy Bonnet Super Airflow Hair Dryer. Also featured this week from Iona, the convenient compact Dirt Raider hand vacuum. And from General Instruments, the affordable Gerald 700
0: programmable TV converter.
4: Your Christmas book to value, consumers distributing.
0: Well, you want to get yourself one of those Gerald 700 TV converters, don't you? Consumers distributing... I mean, I remember that catalogue showing up at our house every... it, It would always conveniently arrive right around late November, just as you were heading into the Christmas period. And I remember just... Coveting things in that, you know, circling them. Of course, I would rarely have ever get them. And when you go to the store, they half the time they didn't have them, which was part of the problem. But consumer distributing, uh, Craig Barrett is host of the Canadian History X podcast. We've been looking in, we're talking about some of those franchises or those stores that were so familiar to us, if you grew up in the 70s, the 80s, or the 90s in this country, that are now long gone. Uh, the tee off of this was that there's one last Sam the Record Man in Belleville, Ontario, that may be closing because the couple who've owned it since 79 are retiring. Consumers Distributing was an interesting one, uh, Craig. I, I don't know if it, you might have just missed that one, uh, but it was everywhere. And then it was gone. I mean, it was it almost like it vanished overnight, but it was a ubiquitous place. I didn't even realize that it actually started in Toronto in the 50s.
4: Yeah, uh, Toronto seems to be kind of, uh, you know, the epicenter for a lot of these chains starting. And yeah, like you said, you know, in 1988, they had revenues of a billion dollars. And then by the mid-1990s, they were pretty much gone. They were more or less gone in 1996. So that is a huge, quick turnaround from being a billion-dollar business to being gone. Yeah, one of the problems that they had, of course, is that
0: the whole way that they were meant to be, they're meant to be sort of a... Cheaper because they didn't have to display all this stuff, right? It was, and, and, but oftentimes when you would go in, they tried to fix this. You'd go in, they wouldn't have what you wanted, and you couldn't tell if they did or not because it was then. Of course, now you'd be able to figure that out in a nanosecond. Um, and then, you know, stores like Zellers and then Walmart came in, and I think that was pretty much uh, the end for them.
4: Oh, for sure. And, you know, they described themselves as the Internet shopping before the Internet. So it's kind of fitting that they disappear just as, you know, the Internet is starting to rise as something people use.
0: Speaking of familiar sites and malls, this one is something that you posted about on social media as well. And I remembered another one. I mean, it was everywhere. And that was Marvelous Muffins. I I hope I got it right. Part of the reason I know that is because when I was living in Toronto, I actually lived around the corner from the original one of the original ones right up there on uh, sort of Avenue and Eglinton area. Um, But that was another one that was absolutely everywhere. And then it wasn't.
4: Yeah, they, they popped up, uh, you know, again in Toronto and within a short amount of time, they just exploded all over the place. And a big reason for that was the fact that they were in malls. And so the, through the 1980s, so many malls are popping up and these muffins are, you know, in the malls. And they have this unique strategy where they have carts of their muffins. So people walking by are smelling their muffins like it was tailor-made for, for being in a mall. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that was, that was. A, I
0: always thought that was a bit of an evil ploy to, to put that, right. I mean, all, all's fair in food and war, I guess. What happened to them?
4: Well, again, you know, the changing uh, retail climate malls started to disappear and you know, it's like in any kind of ecosystem. When you lose the the big predator, all the little predators disappear. And that was the same for the muffins. They, as the mall disappeared, there they didn't really have a business model to adapt to that. And as time went on, they slowly disappeared. But there is still one left in Montreal. That's right. Is it not? Is it at Cavendish Mall or Good Saint Luke Mall or one of those? It's at a mall, right? Yeah, it's at uh, the
0: Saint Luke Mall, I believe. Yeah, at the Cote Saint Luke Mall. I know that actually. That's a, that's an otherwise pretty pretty it can be a bit of a dreary place. I'm surprised that there's still one there. So, I mean, you you also what part of this too is that when the Sam and the Record Man story popped up, you were reminiscing about some of the things that you remembered going to that are no longer with us. And some what I actually I'd never heard of I I, I must have, but I just hadn't thought about it in so long. Was uh, was a store that used to go to in the West Edmonton Mall.
4: Oh, which store did I mention? I was in San Francisco, I think it was. It was a gift shop, I think. Oh, San Francisco, yes. I remember as a kid going into that, and you would just find the strangest things in there, just (laughs) these novelty gifts that made no sense to a 10-year-old, but it was such a bizarre store. I just loved it, and I mean, it started in, I think, West Edmonton Mall, and it kind of died there as well. It lasted for about 20 years, but... It was this wild, weird store that I just loved.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think for all of us who grew up as part of the kind of the mall generation, I think we'd forgotten just how much of a Petri dish the mall could be and how much how much was going on in the mall and how many things wouldn't have survived if it weren't for the mall. And now that the malls are kind of going away, it'll be interesting to see uh, what takes its place.
4: Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, the malls popped up and all these unique stores popped up so without the malls you know what kind of stores will pop up in the future with the internet and and how the retail landscape is now everything's been changing so much just in the past 20 30 years that we've lost so many of these iconic brands like sound the record man and Eaton's and muffins and you know all these other ones yeah there are many out there
0: and also I mean I think anytime anyone who's set foot in a bay store recently and you know anyone who works for the bay out there again you know I've, I've got a lot of time for the bay I've always had a soft spot for the bay because in Montreal was kind of the last one standing after Simpsons and Eatons went and Ogilvy's also later closed. Uh, But it's it's hard to see the Bay surviving much longer as well. And I think much like Sam the Record Man disappearing, the Bay is kind of the last of those. And I think it'll be sad when it goes, even though, I mean, I, I can't honestly remember how last time I bought something there, which
4: unfortunately says a lot. Oh, well, without a doubt, I think the loss of the Bay will probably be probably one of the biggest cultural losses for Canada because we're talking about something that was founded in 1670 and you know has adapted through centuries of change. And the one thing it can't seem to adapt to is the internet.
0: Yeah, I really hope they do. You know, I hope they find a way, much like that one Sam the Record Man still at Quinty Mall in, in Belleville. I really hope that the Bay finds a way to figure out figure this out and stay around because you're right; it's such an integral part uh, of our history, and I think you know not just our consumer history. But but obviously much longer than that. But even our consumer history, it's sad
4: when those when those iconic signs start to disappear off your landscape. And you don't really notice when it's happening. It's you know they're there one day and then suddenly they're gone and you think, oh, I haven't been to this store in years and I didn't realize that was going to be the last time. And I more or less lived at that store for so many years.
0: Yeah, I should point out that I actually live in what used to be the Bay Building in Victoria. So that probably <laughs> probably says something about it. Craig, it's always a joy to chat. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you. But let's take you way back um, to about, what, 40 some odd years ago. Have a listen.
3: The world is waiting, we can take you there, with
1: Air Canada style, see how much we care, world class, world Why?
0: Just the jingle is like being in a time machine. I mean, you play that, and anyone who was around at the time could say to you, yeah, late 70s, early 80s, in and around there. Uh, you obviously aren't able to watch that commercial. You could only hear it. But uh, if you remember back to those commercials back then, if you saw women in them, they were always flight attendants, or stewardesses, as they were called back then, a word that was soon purged from our language. Um, it would probably would have come to a shock as many to many back in 78 or 79, that there was a uniformed woman on board those Air Canada planes, and she was sitting in the cockpit. It was back in 78, nearly 46 years ago now, that Judy Cameron became the first female pilot to fly for a major Canadian carrier when she was hired by Air Canada. What's striking about her really remarkable story is just how similar it is to any pilot of that generation or of any generation, loved motorcycles, loved machines, driving fast, then got a chance summer job uh, with Transportation Canada interviewing pilots. And the rest, as they say, is aviation history. She started with a smaller airline, ended up being uh, brought in by Air Canada and spent much of her 40-year career career there, including rising to uh, captain. Now, over time, there were certainly more women following in her wake, but considering the industry is desperate these days to find qualified pilots, the number of women in that role and in aircraft maintenance as well, where there's also a need for workers, remains low. As of January, nearly 8% of Air Canada's pilots, 410 of them were women. That's better than the U.S. average of uh, 4.9%. But still, it's a figure that is, and it's a figure that's much higher than it was just a few decades ago. But still, in retirement... One of the many things that Captain Cameron, Judy Cameron's been up to is she also serves as director on the Northern Lights Aero Foundation, which is a mentorship and it offers mentorship and highlights women's achievements in aviation, trying to encourage more women to follow in her footsteps and enjoy the kind of career that she enjoyed. And Judy Cameron, the first woman pilot to be hired by a major Canadian carrier back in 78 when she uh, put on that Air Canada uniform, joins me now. Judy, thank you so much for your time tonight.
3: You're very welcome. This was
0: such. A, I mean, I saw this story published. You did an interview with the Canadian Press, and I thought, what an interesting tale! I hadn't thought about about that. And, and now we go back quite. I mean, it goes back forty five years since the beginnings. It seemed, time doesn't time fly. No pun intended. Um, what's it like to look back on those on those early days with Air Canada specifically?
3: I can remember it like it was yesterday. Some things are definitely burned into my memory bank. I still remember um, walking into that classroom the first day. There were 12 of us in total. I was the only female. And it was kind of nice because one of the other guys there was a classmate of mine at Selkirk College where I'd gone to school. But uh, definitely there was a lot of attention and it would seem to be not coincidental that a lot of uh, people were looking in on our classroom. I sort of felt like I was in a fishbowl and was under a lot of pressure because our marks determined our seniority and seniority is everything in the airline. Nicely, though, uh, there was a couple of guys on course who took pity on me and actually set up a study group with me, which was something I'd never encountered when I was going to school at the college. I'd always felt uh, sort of alone, uh, being the only female in the class of 30 guys. So when I started ground school with Air Canada, two of the guys were nice enough to study with me, and it really made all the difference. I felt far more welcome.
0: Reading your story, though, it struck me, having interviewed pilots over the years, that it was so similar to every other pilot story. You know, you liked machines, you had a motorcycle, (laughs) you know, you liked to fly, you learned to fly, you you started small, you built your way up. I mean, that's sort of the pilot story, right?
3: I guess I was an atypical female and that I, I did like things that went fast. I was brought up by a single mom who didn't have any money. We didn't have a car, so the first thing I had was a bicycle, and then in grade 12, managed to save up all my money and buy a little red Yamaha 250 motorcycle. That was my first means of transport. And I got this really strange summer job between first and second year at university. It was a job interviewing pilots all around the Vancouver area, and without that, I don't think I ever would have considered being a pilot. My first flight in a small airplane was really the pivotal moment, as it is for so many people. I'd never been in a small airplane, The pilot that took me up, I was working on his commercial license, and he demonstrated a lot of things you probably shouldn't do on someone's first flight in a small airplane. We did a spin and a stall. He demonstrated a forced approach where you got close to the ground and pretended that your engine wasn't running. I was absolutely terrified. I was hanging onto the seat screaming. And then after we landed, the first thing I thought is, I would really like to do this some more. How can I go about it?
0: Incredible. And you, that you left university. There's a great story that you tell too about your first flight as a pilot because your passenger was someone you've already mentioned.
3: Well, my mom, <laughs> my, once I got my private license, my mom was my first passenger. And in fact, despite the fact she never wanted me to ride a motorcycle, she was my first passenger on the motorcycle as well. She was a pretty good sport. And it was unusual back in the day to encourage your daughter to do whatever she wanted to do, especially if it was something so non-traditional. But she always believed in me and encouraged me, and I owe a lot to her. And in fact, um, she's still alive. And February 21st, it will be her 100th birthday.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, congratulations. That's that's (laughs) quite the milestone.
3: And the other interesting thing is that she was in the Air Force. She was too young to be sent overseas, but she was a stenographer. She was based at Jericho for a while and also at Rockcliffe.
0: Wow. In Ottawa, that was quite a famous one, right?
3: That's right. I have pictures of her in her her RCAF uniform. That's very cool.
0: What was it? I mean, looking back now in the late 70s, you know, I mean, attitudes changed quite rapidly. I mean, maybe maybe, maybe they didn't, but it felt like there was a lot of things moving through the late 70s into the 80s and into the 90s. What was it like just to, because looking again, you had that quite normal beginnings for a pilot just the way you fell in love with it and wanted to do it that's the story you hear from all pilots really and then through your career at air canada as well you kind of just progressed the way that pilots progress right you went from from the from the smaller routes to the bigger routes to the bigger planes and you had just this kind of really wonderful career that that uh if you just took away the gender part of it you would have the most standard pilots career in many ways
3: that's pretty much it and i did just want to fit in and in some ways be one of the guys that's the wonderful thing about the airline. It is a seniority system. And as long as you can pass your check rides, as long as you can train correctly on each airplane, you can move from smaller to larger aircraft and move up in seniority. Uh, I did my captaincy. It took 20 years for me because, uh, well, the progression just wasn't that rapid back in the day. So it was a really big deal. I'd been with the airline almost 20 years, and I finally did my captaincy on the DC-9.
0: Incredible. And there were some obviously some challenges over time. There is a a story that you tell about obviously having a family and how difficult that was to reconcile back then because essentially the entire system was built for men. It wasn't built for anybody else.
3: I guess you could say that, but it's one of the reasons often people think women don't become pilots. But I find that um, interesting because flight attendants have been working the same kind of schedules as pilots for years. And most of them had families. So I don't think that really should be a barrier to women. But the other good thing is the economic security afforded by a career like this in a STEM field that that is well paid allows you to have good child care. And that is the one thing that so many women lack. And it makes it so hard for them to proceed in their careers. I became a single mom when my children were eight and three. And after that, I was able to have nannies. It, it was difficult I also had the opportunity with the airline of staying senior on a piece of equipment. So rather than moving to a larger airplane and perhaps having a pay increase right away, I would stay on something smaller and be able to do the milk runs and be home most nights. I think a lot of uh, working female pilots with children do that. Yeah. What was it like? What
0: was the reaction like? Because I think even today... I, I hate to confess this, but even today, when you're sitting on a plane and then the captain comes on, inevitably right before you're about to to leave, yeah. you hear a woman's voice. It still you still it still catches your attention. Maybe not in the way that it would have, you know, forty fifty years ago. But you're still like, oh, we have a we have a a woman captain today. Isn't that isn't that great? Or you know, it, but it still is some. It is still an object to some extent of curiosity.
3: You know and that's true because worldwide now it's changing a bit but it kind of it's incredible to me I started flying in 1973 there are still today only around 6 to 7% commercial pilots worldwide that are female and there's even less women in aircraft maintenance it's only 2% but back in the day when I first started making PA's one of the very first times this is quite funny I made an announcement saying this is the first officer speaking and a few minutes later Flight attendant burst into the flight deck and said, you won't believe what happened. After you made the announcement, two guys that were in business class both leaned into the aisle so fast to see the woman pilot that was talking that they actually bumped heads and she was laughing. It was uh, pretty comical.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's been. I mean, I know you don't want to talk about yourself in this way, but you you really are seen within, amongst other female pilots and pilots. Period, as having been a real trailblazer. There's a lot of respect for what you did, and I know you don't see it necessarily that way, but um, but there is a, a huge amount of respect, obviously, for what you for the trail you blazed, essentially.
3: And I wasn't really looking to be a trailblazer. I just really liked flying and wanted to do it. But now that I'm retired, and I realize there still aren't that many women in aviation, I have joined the board of the Northern Lights Aero Foundation. And that started back in 2009 by a group of female pilots who thought that we needed more role models. We needed more women to make this the career visible. And they started an award ceremony, and it's grown over the last 15 years. We had 600 people at our award event last fall. Most of the major airlines were there. And we have women who have succeeded in Canadian aviation, not just as pilots, but also educators, um, engineers, business women, who have done a lot for aviation and aerospace. And they are now on stage. Their life stories are being told and they are role models for other young women. And we had about 200 students in the audience, most of them women, most of them pursuing aviation. And by the way, Air Canada now has 420 female pilots, of which 80 are captains. So the number is almost 8%, which is better than the industry average. In 2020, they started scholarships for women in aviation, and they named it after me, which was just a huge honor. They started off with four for the first couple of years, and now with other companies joining in, we had 13 last year, 13 scholarships of $5,000 for Canadian women who are either becoming pilots or aircraft maintenance engineers. I'm really proud of that initiative.
0: Judy Cameron is with us uh, this half hour. She is a director with the Northern Lights Aero Foundation, which offers mentorship and highlights women's achievements in aviation. She herself um, blazed a trail in aviation in this country. She was the first female pilot hired by a major Canadian carrier back in 1978 when she was brought on By air canada Uh, judy i've read these stories all the time about you know especially i was in china for quite a while as we were talking about used to fly you may have flown me to beijing or back but you used to fly that (laughs) route uh to beijing you know china's struggling with with trying to train enough pilots because they had this huge growth in their aviation industry right around the world there was a lack of pilots and yet you have this population that that isn't that you know only eight percent of air canada's pilots are women which is high for by industry standards it feels like a real untapped source of richness for the the industry to try to encourage women to come and work in aviation.
3: It is and I'm doing my darndest to change it but it was gratifying for me this year to see how many applications we had for the scholarship. Every year it's growing and some of the young women are just remarkable because one of the things we look for is not just their own achievements but we're looking for Women who are willing to pay it back to others or pay it forward, I should say, Mm -hmm. looking for ones who are volunteering and are willing to help other women. So that was a great part of the scholarship criteria. And they're out there. They're out there. They're air cadets who are now taking uh, aviation courses. There's universities all across Canada. I think it's changing. I'd like to see it changed. I don't think we're anywhere near 50%, but I'd really like to see things
0: improve. I was interested in seeing, too, that not only did you talk about encouraging young women to become pilots or get into the cockpit, so to speak, but also to to uh, to work as aircraft maintenance engineers, because I suspect that, and, and, you know, you don't see a lot of that if you're just a passenger. But I suspect that's a pretty male-dominated area or has been traditionally as well.
3: It is. The stats are even worse there. As I said, it's 2% women in aircraft maintenance. And there is a perception that you have to, you know, have a lot of muscles and it requires a lot of strength, but actually it doesn't. I was speaking to one of the female AMEs and she said it's having the right tool and having the right technique. And a lot of the women do really, really well in that field. In fact, there's been competitions. I, I can't tell the names of them, but I know that the female teams have excelled. They've actually won, excelled over the guys.
0: <laughs> wow. I I was reading, too, speaking of your first ever flight in a private plane where you were doing some stuff you probably shouldn't have been doing. Uh, No, you weren't flying, by the way, I should mention. You also uh, (laughs) took a course on aerobatics as well. So there you are. You're still that wasn't that long ago. You're still testing the boundaries.
3: Well, that was the joke. You know, I spent 37 years with the airline trying to avoid flying upside down at all costs. (laughs) And Once I retired... I really, really, really wanted to go out and try doing some aerobatics. It was something that always had interested me. It's a lot of fun.
0: When you look back at, at your many years uh, in aviation, what are some of your fondest memories? What do you miss about it the most?
3: Oh, well, um, it was always fun exploring a new city. I took my running shoes with me. I used to run on all the layovers. Um, that was always really interesting. Um, seeing the sunrise, you know, crossing the Atlantic, the sun coming up in the morning, Flying across the Rockies, absolutely breathtaking. You know, sharing sharing stories with the guys that I worked with. And also doing takeoffs and landings and probably the most powerful piece of machinery I would ever operate. Uh, it's gratifying. It's the kind of job where you can see what you accomplished in a day. You went from one place to another safely. I, I guess there's a lot to miss. <laughs> I don't miss getting up early in the morning. I don't miss ironing those white shirts. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I always wanted to know about that. You have to iron those yourself, right? There's no dry cleaning or? Uh,
3: well, yeah, I was fussy. Yeah. Not too many. I don't think too many pilots really enjoyed uh, the number of check rides that you had, simulators, etc. It's a profession where there's a lot of medicals. And the good part is, though, you get to go to school every time you learn a new airplane. And it keeps your, your brain in gear, which is great.
0: They always talk about how automated everything is. Did you have a favorite plane?
3: I really enjoyed flying the triple seven. it was a beautiful airplane beautiful to land lovely to taxi you're you're one of the biggest airplanes on the ground it was uh, just very cool
0: Judy uh, thanks so much for sharing your story with me I really uh, I really appreciate it and, and congratulations on all that you've done and all that you continue to do I hope it has uh, I hope it has a real impact because I think it's one of those untapped resources out there that women should really I mean who is who is it for me to say I'll let you say it but it, it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like a wonderful career.
3: I hope more young Canadian women will consider it as a career. It was wonderful.
0: This is a topic that gets a lot of attention, maybe not as much here, obviously, but in the U.S., if you watch U.S. news these days, I mean, talk about what's happening on their southern border seems to be constant, and it's a huge issue. Uh, rightly or wrongly, unfortunately, in this upcoming U.S. presidential election. Specifically, of course, Donald Trump has thought that it's going to make him... It's an issue that he feels he can win on. And the Biden administration, of course, has been having a rough time this one. Uh, Migrant arrivals at the border have risen to record highs during Biden's administration. A massive political headache uh, for him ahead of the election. Polls suggest that more than two-thirds of Americans disapprove of his handling of this issue. So he is vulnerable there. Just to put some numbers on this, more than 6.3 million migrants have been detained crossing into the U.S. illegally under Joe Biden, a higher number than under um, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, or George W. Bush. And it has become perhaps, again, what may be a defining issue in this year's presidential election, which will probably involve uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump once again. The issue is so politically toxic in some ways, but such a political battlefield mainly, that House Republicans are scuttling a massive $118 billion national security package that includes aid for Ukraine and Israel, uh, Southeast Asia, as well as $20 billion to fund changes to the U.S. migration system. President Biden even promised to shut down asylum screenings for those who cross illegally. That's up to about 10000 a day. But again... Not enough because Trump believes any compromise will take away his best line of attack come the November election. Here, by the way, is House Speaker Republican Mike Johnson.
1: Clearly, what's been what's been suggested is in this bill is not enough to secure the border. And we have to insist we have a responsibility, a duty to the American people to insist that the border catastrophe has ended.
0: But a catastrophe, right? Where did it begin? because it didn't just suddenly happen. This has been building for years and years and years. And it all reminded me of a movie that my mom brought me to see all the way back in 1983 that's, that I've held on to all these years. I've seen it again since, but it really was the sort of the pinnacle film about uh, what we're seeing today to some extent. Um, you know, it's it's not new. The United States has been a beacon for a very long time, especially for other countries in the Americas, uh, south of America specifically, uh, the dream of, of El Norte, the north, you know. Um, so this movie is called El Norte. It was the story of an indigenous brother and sister who escape arrest and torture by the regime in Guatemala in the early 80s, a U.S.-backed regime, no less, and make their way to the promised land, which is America. Here's a bit of the trailer. United. By family,
1: <laughs>
4: torn by injustice, Mama! inspired by a dream. Al
0: <laughs>
5: Norte,
4: they traveled thousands of miles to get to a new land. But their journey was just beginning.
0: That is a trailer from 1983's El Norte. Amazing to think that it's uh, 40 plus years old now because the story it tells, although the dynamics of, the, of a lot of it have changed obviously over the years, the story is so familiar. And I mentioned that movie because it What we're seeing on the U.S. border right now, the catastrophe that we're seeing there, has its roots in events that date back to then and even before that movie was made. Um, It's the outcome of what's being described as a long and vexed entanglement between the U.S. and its other neighbors. And it's a tangled history. That is the storyline of a new book by New Yorker staff writer called Jonathan Blitzer. It's called Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. And he profiles a whole bunch of people, including migrants, activists, and politicians. And really, he tells their stories over the last half century, and it's really about Cold War counterinsurgencies in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And that's what that story El Norte was essentially about, was escaping those regimes uh, that displaced millions and helped remake U.S. US immigration policy. The growth of gangs in Central America, bolstered by deportation, and the rise in asylum seekers uh, right around the world, but specifically onto the southern border uh, as a mass movement of the dispossessed. And Jonathan Blitzer, the book is fantastic. He joins me now. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. You know, Canadians look across the border and we think of America as a land of immigration. We, you know, we we know the the words that are etched on the, on the Statue of Liberty and think that's what America is all about. When did that begin to shift? When did immigration become sort of this major, or if not the dominant issue? in American politics and not necessarily in a good way. Yeah. You know, I think, I, I think the idea of a, an America that is
5: wholly inclusive uh, and that takes the charge of the statute of Liberty to heart uh, is always a little bit of a myth that the country has told itself. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but I think, you know, you know, on the whole, this issue has, you know, it's it's always been polarizing. It's always been quite intense. And, and you see that across the world, but I think, you know, what's really sort of picked up over the years has sort of been this issue of, A large number of people seeking asylum at the southern border. Obviously, the legal and moral obligation the country has to respond to that population, but of course, the kind of political explosiveness of this issue uh, in Washington. And so, really, to, to any date I pick would undersell how the lastingly controversial element of this issue in our politics. But I think it's fair to say, really, 2014, to my mind. The explosion of kind of the ugliness in our politics around this issue. What happened then really, I think, it helps us understand maybe the realities that we're facing now of just total intractability from Republicans and Democrats on dealing with any of the underlying policy needs
0: of this debate. It's interesting because I think as Canadians we get uh, quite a bit of news from Europe as well so in England specifically so we're you know we're familiar with with the migration well, I mean we're seeing the largest movement of people in history right now so we're familiar with immigration issues in places such as Greece or in the UK or in you know or in, in France or or you know, people trying to cross the Mediterranean and and we look at America And and it's interesting that you've drawn this specifically looked to the past and Central America as being sort of the roots of America's particular issue with its southern border. What made you decide to, to look back in time? Because I think a lot of people think of these as sort of almost like natural phenomenon, right? That this is a wave of people. We often describe it as a wave of people coming, which suggests that there's nothing behind it. It just happened.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure you felt this to some degree as well over the years. I, you know, I, I felt that I was constantly just chasing after, you know, one story after the next, each one of which, you know, was sort of about the current crisis, the current crisis, and we kind of just were sprinting through it all. And I, I really felt like there was a need to to sort of break the cycle of just the reactiveness to how we covered what we were seeing at the southern border and understand the actual origins of it. And you know, f- for me, the sort of the the real central phenomenon in the book that i'm reckoning with is the fact that for the last decade and it's starting to shift now but for the last decade um the population that showed up at the us southern border has been primarily uh, families and children seeking asylum coming from central america um and that story you know really burst on the american political scene and quite quite literally at the border in 2014 but to understand what was happening in 2014 you had to go back in time and and, and really That story began in 1980. The accumulated effects of American foreign policy, of American immigration policy started to build through the 80s and early 90s, early 2000s. And then when you have an event like what the U.S. saw in 2014, and obviously that continues for years to come, the way to understand it is to see the fact that this is decades of history
0: piling up uh, and, and, and finally forcing a conversation at the border. It's interesting. I mentioned uh, at the outset that when I was young, my mom brought me to see a movie called El Norte, which of course means the North in Spanish. And it involved two, a young Guatemalan couple who have to flee because they're being persecuted. I think the father in the movie is trying to organize a labor thing, which is seen as communist. And of course, that's another whole other issue. But certainly things like organized labor were persecuted. There was sort of your very definition of the sort of people that we would see leave Guatemala back in the early 80s and make their way to the North. I I was curious from your perspective, because I think that's sort of the romanticized view we've had. And romanticize is probably a bad word, but that's the view we've had of who comes and why, and that has changed. I mean, at least according to what you've written, one of the persons you pro- people you profile sort of harkens back to that era, but it has changed dramatically in the last forty years. I mean, you know, the the idea,
5: to my mind, is that there are broadly speaking two ways in which American foreign policy has has shaped. The profile of people who show up at the southern border seeking asylum. Uh, The the first comes from the 1980s. So in the 1980s, you had the United States prosecuting its Cold War agenda in Latin America, which meant that the U.S. was aligned with repressive right wing governments that really brutalized their populations uh, and targeted anyone who was suspected of having sort of ties or sympathies with leftist causes. Uh, and so you had a civil war in El Salvador that ran from 1980 to 1992. You had a 30-year-long civil war, essentially, in Guatemala from the 60s to the early to mid-90s. And the U.S. was was deeply involved in each of these war efforts. They were propping up the governments that were, that were in- engaging in real brutalization of the public. Uh, and one of the things that we started to see in the 80s was that there was a huge population of people who fled these countries. Um, and, you know, it's important for Americans in particular, and of course for anyone in the world, but especially for Americans to understand that U.S. foreign policy essentially created a new demographic in the world, in the region. And that was people who were fleeing their homes because it was too dangerous to stay, and who were seeking protection in the U.S. And in all through the 1980s, uh, you had a new piece of legislation in 1980 that was the first time the American government had codified in a statute, uh, asylum and refugee law. And and the idea was, of course, that the U.S. owed anyone seeking asylum at the southern border, seeking protection or relief, uh, a a chance to make their claim. Um, And one of the interesting things during that era was people who fled Guatemala and people who fled El Salvador, um, where they were suffering repression at the hands of these U.S. allies in the Cold War, Those people had their asylum claims rejected at a much higher rate than other immigrants showing up at the border seeking asylum. Eventually, this led to a lawsuit and the U.S. government had to recognize that had to acknowledge that it had deliberately sabotaged the asylum applications of people whose very applications were a kind of testament to what the U.S. commitments in the region meant on the human level. Then in the 1990s, you had the US for a bunch of complicated reasons, uh, almost all of which driven by kind of domestic politics, really ramping up its deportation policies. And over time, one of the outgrowths of that was that street gangs that had formed on the streets of Los Angeles and elsewhere in the United States ended up spreading as a result of deportation through Central America. And so, you know, fast forward 15 years, say, uh, or 20 years to the you know, the kind of mid-2000s, a lot of the people showing up at that southern border are people fleeing
0: violence that is directly traceable to American policy in the decades prior. Jonathan Blitzer uh, covers immigration for The New Yorker. His book is called Everyone Who Has Gone Here. Everyone Who Has Gone Is Here, I should say, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. Uh, I mean, we used to read about this stuff, Jonathan, when, and, and there were always examples of it, for instance, especially in Canada, of sort of young Jamaicans being deported back to Jamaica who'd never lived there. You know, they might have a, a criminal history in this country, but they were being deported or, or back to Haiti, for instance. That was another one that Canada saw quite a bit of. And these and they were arriving back in countries with no connections. They didn't necessarily speak much of the language. Maybe they did. But, you know, they didn't have any roots there. And what, it, what happened was you ended up in, not only did you deport these young men or young women, but you also exported the gang problem. That's what you referred to with gangs like MS-13, whose name listeners may know.
5: Yeah, essentially, you're talking about people who have been displaced twice. So, you know, to tell the story of the rise of a gang like MS-13, you have to go back to the years of the Salvadoran Civil War. And in the early 1980s, you had huge numbers of Salvadorans fleeing El Salvador, arriving in the United States. Uh, At a certain point, up to a quarter of the Salvadoran population had reached the United States during the war years. just a, a staggering percentage of the Salvadoran population had relocated to the United States. And in certain inner city enclaves where gang violence was just a fact of life, you had a lot of these newcomers who were kind of brutalized by this, you know inner city racial hierarchy. There were you know, there were black gangs, there were Mexican street gangs. There was a kind of whole ecosystem that these new uh, migrants, uh, new arrivals, Kind of walked right into. Uh, and so through the 1980s, what you saw in places like Los Angeles were s- certain members of the Salvadoran community uh, who were in the inner city in south-central Los Angeles, uh, forming groups of their own, essentially as a form of self-defense. Uh, and over time, of course, these groups grew more and more violent. They started to develop their kind of their own gang imperatives. And by the early 1990s, the U.S. government, in a kind of nationwide crackdown on inner city crime, increasingly was arresting a lot of these Salvadorans, uh, young Salvadorans, you know, teenagers, essentially, um, and deporting them back to Central America. And so this is the second dislocation in the lives of these uh, these people. You know, first, they were uprooted by civil war, and they arrived as immigrants in an unfamiliar country uh, where they were met with immediate hostility. Uh, and now they're arriving back in a country that they barely know decades later, and they're beginning to spread the their, their the sensibility they've developed in the United States. And this is something a kind of through line, I mean, this is applicable across the world, but s- certainly governments kind of have this mentality when they engage in policies of mass deportation that, you know, problem solved, out of sight, out of mind. Um, but of course... You know someone's life, someone's whole kind of perspective, their background, what they've lived—that travels with them um, for better and for worse. And in in, in this case, in the story of the rise of the gangs, uh, this became a real problem. And and, and the gangs metastasized
0: throughout Central America. And as you mentioned, it uh, not only did it once again create a vicious circle of people sort of being sent back, and then other other people being forced to flee. uh, You've also talked quite specifically about you know refugee left legislation that exists in america and how it doesn't that in deterrence doesn't really apply to to those who find themselves trying to make their way to the to the southern border or to the border with us and mexico now that you have this whole generation of people who aren't deterred they'll simply keep coming back no matter how many times they're deported because there is nowhere they have no roots. there is nowhere else to go
5: well, so you know, the way I understand this kind of broader legal dimension in the United States, or the, the policy element of this conversation with asylum law and immigration law on the southern border, there's sort of two sort of two ways of of thinking about it. The first is there is this legislation that has existed in the United States since nineteen eighty that specifies, you know, the types of persecution someone is suffering from that would trigger protection at the southern border. All through the nineteen eighties, as we talked about earlier the promise of that legislation was never fully realized. You had the government deliberately interfering with the adjudication of asylum claims for geopolitical reasons. Um, over the succeeding two decades, um, what you have is kind of a classic case of political inattention and a lack of you know, political will. And so the asylum system isn't really modified. It's not updated to, to deal with the world that we are increasingly living in of different demographic complexities and people fleeing different sorts of things, not just kind of standard issue persecution from right-wing governments, say, but, you know, gang violence, for instance, which doesn't map as cleanly onto the kind of legal understanding that existed when someone was fleeing a repressive government, Um, people fleeing uh, the ravages of climate change, and so on. These are all pressures that, that, that accumulate and that build And the United States, because the politics are so deadlocked around this issue because it's just become such a toxic political subject, the wider immigration system has not been updated since 1990. And one of the consequences of that, predictably, is that there aren't legal avenues for people to come to the United States uh, in ways that meaningfully meet either the United States' needs or the kind of needs of the wider region and world. And so increasingly what's happened is because the system hasn't been updated or reformed in any meaningful sense, the pressure point for everything has shifted to the southern border where people's best chance of entering the United States is to just go there, show up and lodge an asylum claim. And so- you have a system that was never built to deal with this kind of volume of people, uh, basically having to shoulder the burdens of an entire immigration system that has become essentially dysfunctional.
0: Jonathan Blitzer uh, is with us. He uh, works for The New Yorker magazine, is a staff writer there. His new book is called Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, The United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. Jonathan, I think one of the things that perplexes Canadians sometimes, as you look at America, the economy is booming. Uh, there's obviously a need for employment. So it feels like there is room to, t- if the system worked, there would be room to take in lots of people. And of course, every, people want to come to America, right? There's that contradiction between the fact that America sees itself as this shining light and then wouldn't, it, as a beacon, then wouldn't expect people to follow that shining light. What's gone wrong? How, is it just the politics? They can't figure out how to make this work properly because no one can agree on how to do it? Well, let me first
5: say that, you know, I I speak pretty frequently with lawmakers in Washington and a number of them have expressed to me a kind of envy of the Canadian system uh, and the (laughs) fact that the Canadian immigration system, which I'm sure, I mean, you know more about than I do, uh, and I'm sure there are. All sorts of problems with it, as inevitably there are. But the specific point that lawmakers point out to me that they're envious of on the US side of things is that there, there are ways that the system in Canada is responsive to the economy and to the world at large. Visas, for instance, they're flexible. They're not capped at certain levels where the levels were established, say, 15 years ago or 20 years ago. In the US, it's going to end up sounding honestly fairly generic kind of populist, often racist sentiment is just a reality of life in the world. And there's a specific history of it in the United States. For the most part, when members of both political parties have sort of followed the sort of general norms of political life, there's been relatively little kind of deliberate, cynical manipulation of these undercurrents in American life. Obviously that ha- that's happened. Obviously, the political parties over the years, really on both sides, have have preyed on people's fears in different ways. But I think in recent years, and and Trump is sadly the signal example here. You basically had someone very deliberately exploiting all of the resentments associated with immigration, all of the fears associated with immigration, really kind of playing into, in an almost textbook way, uh, people's frustrations with elements of their own lives and blaming newcomers for it. I mean, this is a classic trope in civilizational life. And, and once you have someone like Trump doing it at a level with a ferocity and a kind of volume and a, and a successfulness, frankly, he's he's weaponized it in a way that his party has now fully embraced. And I don't know that you can go back after after the sort of genius out of the bottle in that sense. It, it's very hard to go back to the way things were. I mean, I, I think Democrats are, are are struggling with this right now. I mean, they're they're trying to articulate policy based on values and they're getting out shouted. Uh, and as they get out shouted, they're getting increasingly nervous. And And so you've watched the political conversation just progressively shift to the right. The bottom has sort of fallen out of it.
0: Yeah. I I mean, even President Biden's recent reaction to it suggests that the Democrats are a very worried about this issue, that there seems their polling in America is very low on this. Where does this all lead, though? Because the one thing and and not to be too Pollyanna-ish about the whole thing, but one thing that you don't seem to see is anything that looks like a viable solution, either for those trying to get into the country or for America itself, who could, you know, let's be honest. I mean, America still gets tons of immigration, but, you know, can use the extra folks. Yeah, I mean, it should be said, and this is this
5: is just one of the kind of complexities of of covering the kind of policy reality alongside the political mess of it. You know, the Biden administration has done concrete things that are meaningfully distinct from the Trump administration that I don't think it really gets enough credit for. It, It has increased legal immigration. It has kind of restarted the refugee program. It's done a lot of things that the Trump administration not only didn't do, but the Trump administration had deliberately subverted aspects of the system. And so, you know, it it was a complicated job for the Biden administration to enter office and need to sort of stand back up this hulking system that really was kind of systematically undercut over the previous four years. But it's true that for reasons that must seem obscure to non-Americans, but are are all too familiar to us here. There is somehow this assumption uh, in American political life that the tougher you sound on immigration, the kind of more orderly you are at the border. This is what explains the Republican polling advantage on the issue. You know, Republicans historically, particularly during the Trump years, are much harsher in their policies at the border. Uh, they've they've engaged in many instances in outright torture. I mean, in twenty eighteen the Trump administration separated 5,000 children from their parents at the border as a way of sending a message to other migrants in the region. Of course, within a year of that, you had immigration at the southern border reaching record heights. People who are desperate to leave their home countries are going to leave their home countries. And it's a, a challenge for an administration to deal with, given the rough and tumble politics of it it involves essentially acknowledging that you can't simply stop the flow of people. These are world historical and global factors that are putting people on the move. The Biden administration has been kind of trapped a bit uh, between not wanting to talk about this issue at all because they see it as such a lose-lose politically. And then what we're seeing most, most recently, kind of tuning back in a little bit too late and having their messaging be very conservative in sound and feel because they're trying to outflank the Republicans on this. And so that whole middle zone where the policy debate needs to be kept, you know, somewhat clear so that lawmakers can meaningfully legislate around this issue is just, you know, completely bypassed. And so we're only ever talking about this complex phenomenon from the kind of margins of the political
0: discourse. And so there's just this profound mismatch. And of course, no help, I I guess, for for the Biden administration, specifically from Republican governors in places like Texas, right, who seem to be this idea of, which seems, uh, again, from an outsider's point of view, just ludicrous of busing, busing people up into other cities and then having them dropped off. I mean, to me, that seems like the the, the height of inhumanity, but still it's done and it clearly is having an impact because states with Democratic governors are feeling the pressure.
5: I mean, that has more than anything else
0: in the last few years really changed
5: the political conversation around immigration among democrats so the the decision of the republican governor of texas greg abbott to bus some 80,000 people to democratic cities and states across the country so you know denver uh, washington dc chicago new york boston it's really overwhelmed local authorities precisely because the governor of texas has done this in a way, intended to sow chaos. One of the ironies for me covering this, of course, is in a different set of circumstances, the idea that a border state would try to relieve pressure at the border by helping move people to the interior of the country is not such an outlandish thought. It's just the way in which this is happening. If you had, for instance, the federal government doing that and coordinating with local and state authorities, you know, with the kind of premise being, look, we need to give people the resources they need. There are cities all across the country where there are labor shortages. There is a chance to meet that need with the arrival of these new people. I think the conversation would look a lot different. But of course, that's not what's happening. It's being done very, very deliberately and cynically to cause chaos and to stoke resentments. And I I have to say, I hate to say it, it's really succeeded. I mean, the political conversation has been turned on its head within the last year and a half. Jonathan
0: Blitzer is with us. His book is called Everyone Who Is Gone Is Here, the United States, Central America, and the Making of a Crisis. Uh, Jonathan, I know you don't have a crystal ball for this, but let's, I mean, this is clearly going to be, if not the dominant, one of the dominant political issues in America over the, nec- over the next nine months or so as we head towards election day, because I gather uh, the Republicans and specifically Donald Trump have decided this is the issue that they're going to hammer on, uh, uh, hammer Joe Biden on uh, in the next uh, in the next several months or so it's it's surreal to watch right now i have to say because you know what you essentially have is
5: the republican party in congress sabotaging any negotiation on this issue even we're talking about funding requests i mean given the volume of people showing up at the southern border there are just resourcing needs that the federal government has and when the white house sends those budget requests to congress those requests are getting blocked you know, this is not my interpretation of events. This is the explicit statement of principle that you're hearing from Republican leaders in Washington. You have the, the Republican leader in the Senate, the minority leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, meeting with members of his party in the Senate saying, quite literally, these are his words, you know, listen, I know some of you have been negotiating this deal with the Biden White House to make certain changes to the asylum system in exchange for green lighting some of these budget requests. We're going to actually stop those negotiations because our presumptive nominee, Donald Trump, is running on this issue and he benefits from the wider chaos. I honestly don't know what we're going to see. I mean, in a strange sense, the last few days have shown just the degree of Republican mismanagement and folly. So you had, you know, essentially a bill that Republicans called for Uh, to reform aspects of the asylum system, which then once it was delivered, Republicans rejected, even though some of them had been involved in the process of drafting the bill. You had that. Then you had Republicans trying to impeach the president's Secretary of Homeland Security, which is the federal department responsible for immigration enforcement. This is the first time that's happened that a cabinet secretary in the United States uh, has faced an impeachment charge since 1876. It was pure political theater, uh, uh, an actual circus. That vote failed. And so, you know, you're seeing this Republican implosion. And in a certain sense, when you start to game this out in terms of kind of the Washington politics of it, you might be inclined to think, oh, okay, well, the Democrats by default have racked up a couple of victories here. They seem more competent than their Republican counterparts. Uh, the problem is there is still this massive situation at the border that needs to be addressed in some fashion. If, if, if for no other reason than there have to be more resources allocated to the border right now. And and that just keeps getting deferred. And so I I honestly, I fear for us uh, over the next nine months because I just think the political rhetoric is going to get louder and shriller um, and just more reductive overall. And the particular needs at the
0: border and in cities across the country are going to grow more and more acute. Yeah, it always strikes me that this is sort of an inferno, and uh, the Democrats carry a, a, a well a well intentioned garden hose, and and uh, Donald Trump just likes to is you know basically carrying a gas you know it's gasoline, it's heating oil they he's pouring on it. You know, your book. I should mention that the book is it really focuses on in certain individuals and their journeys through this whole system. One of them, of course, uh, Juan Ram- 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 Ramagosa, actually returns to El Salvador. I was curious when you walked away from writing this, having gone back in time, looked at what happened. Is the reason for long term? confidence here at all that somehow this will all work out? Because I think we, we talk about this as sort of masses coming to the border, but these are all as we, as you, I don't need to tell you this. These are all individuals with families and dreams and hopes and all the things that, all the things that El Norte talked about that movie I was mentioning earlier on in our conversation. Do you think fundamentally there is still some, some good that's happening here above and beyond all, all the insanity of the politics?
5: Well, I'm, I'm glad you ask about the people in the book because you know that that's that that's what the project of this book essentially is—to to understand the the history, the politics, the policy through actual human lives and what it's meant for them. Um, and so there are four main characters in the book. Juan is one of them. These are people I've known for many years. Um, uh, I mean, it's these are relationships that run deep. Um, and it's going to sound—I mean, look—it's going to sound corny, but the, the honest truth is, um, the reason I do this work. Uh, the reason I even really care about the policy and the politics of it is because of the people whose lives are caught up in all of this. Um, and so on the one hand, you kind of survey the political landscape and you look at what are legitimately you know, complex policy conundrums to, in terms of how you deal with mass migration in this moment all over the world. And so you, know, you feel sort of overwhelmed just by the seeming insolubility of all of that. But for me, the 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 source of inspiration are are the people involved in all of this the just incredible ingenuity and humanity and grace that they show it's it's this overwhelming feeling i have reporting on these issues that that the people whose lives are caught up in all of these kind of geopolitical uh forces are so much better and more noble than the sum of the elements in the world they inhabit um and that's uh i think Ultimately, the thing that kind of gives me faith and that keeps me going journalistically, for sure, uh, the chance to 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 meet people, to see how they move through the world, even as the you know political discourse shrinks into in, in, into kind of unintelligibility. I, I I do find myself believing in people. That's my sort of journalistic charge: is to is to, to write about those sorts of people.
0: I don't imagine you could do this if you didn't take that approach. I mean, I think that's always the fear when people start to demonize hopes and aspirations of people making their way to those borders. I mean, I always think of it as having covered this issue in Europe as well. Just imagine imagine if that was you, if that was your family. I mean, that is
5: one of the most striking daily facts of doing this kind of reporting. You sort of come face to face with this very scary realization that there is an element of randomness. In how these stories play out, the idea that I'm the one writing about someone's story and someone else is living that personal story—I mean, that's an accident of so many things. It's an accident of geography, of history. You know, I've I've found in certain cases, you know, I'm the same age, say, as someone I'm writing about, uh, or I've just gone through the same life stage that person has gone through with my family. It, it's it's. I mean, to, to call it humbling is to really sort of undersell just how existentially jarring it is. To see that really a huge amount of luck is what a- allows for for me to be the one writing this book, we can't get too far away from that realization. If if, if we want to see the kind of human reality of of this moment with clarity, we have to really understand that this is this is something that could happen to anyone. Um, and you know, we we owe people a, a certain basic generosity and and empathy for that reason.
0: Jonathan, uh, thank you so much for your time tonight.